1: This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now.
2: You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase Mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase Mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JP Morgan, Chase Bank, N.A. Member, FDIC.
0: easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I'm joined by New York Times journalist Ezra Klein. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Why We're Polarized. He's also the host of his own podcast, The Ezra Klein Show, which you can find on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, or wherever you are listening to this right now. Before we get into that conversation, I want to mention a few things here. We received a few emails asking about the Talk Easy mugs. Uh, We were previously out of them, but we just got a new order in. They come in cream or navy. If you don't have one and want to support our show, you can do so at talkeasypod.com slash shop. That's talkeasypod.com shop. If you want to support us in other ways, just leaving a review on Apple, Spotify, wherever you're listening, or even just clicking those stars. All of that helps new listeners find this show. This is an independently born podcast, which is a roundabout way of saying that Talk Easy, which is now somehow in year seven, has been made possible by you at home, supporting, sharing, and showing up. And speaking of showing up, we wanna try putting together a mailbag episode. Basically, we wanna hear from you. I spend most of the time on this show asking questions, but I realize you may have some for me and the team that make Talk Easy. So if you have any questions or even just a comment or reflection on a certain episode, maybe something one of our talks inspired in you or an episode that helped you get through whatever it is that you are going through, whatever is on your mind, we're interested in hearing it. So send it along to mail at talkeasypod.com. That's mail at talkeasypod.com. You can also find that email address on your phone in the description of this episode. I don't know when or how often we will do these mailbag episodes, but I'm really looking forward to hearing from you. Now, for this week's episode, I wanted to sit with somebody who could help us unpack what's happening in American politics. Before joining the New York Times, Ezra worked as a policy reporter for 15 years on the Hill. He created the very popular Wonk blog at the Washington Post. He was also a founding member of Vox, a publication that, popularized explainer journalism. Ezra, as you'll hear, is pretty good at explaining the news. He has a way of making complex issues comprehensible, which this week includes school closures, voting rights, the 2022 midterms, inflation, and a whole lot more. If you'd like to read some of the articles referenced in this conversation, be sure to visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com. Our team does a great job of providing supplemental resources for you to read, listen to, and uh, look at away from this conversation. So be sure to do that at talkeasypod.com. We have lots ahead in 2022 to share with you. And by the way, if this conversation feels a little bleak on the first half, just trust me on this and stick around to the end. As is usually true in trying times, it does get better or In this case, with Ezra, it does get a little sunnier. Thanks for being here. Ezra Klein, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I know uh, you recently welcomed a second child into your household. So if at any point during this conversation you have to change a diaper or something happens, just give me the signal that we agreed upon before starting here. That I'll just run out of the room? Yeah, that's the signal. Just go. Is that the signal? Yeah, yeah. And I'll, I'll just fill time.
3: <laughs> yeah, you'll you'll either get me running out of the room or I'll just collapse into non sequitur as 45% of my brain immediately goes to, is that just making noises or is that crying? <laughs>
0: I look forward to it either way. I actually wanted to start with children here and, and this ongoing debate around school closures in the wake of Omicron. We've seen closures in Detroit, Milwaukee, Chicago, Baltimore. By the time this airs, most kids will be returning to in-person learning. But being a father of two, I wonder how you've been processing this contentious exchange between school districts, teacher unions, and parents, and what this maybe says about us.
3: I think this is a really very, very hard set of issues. I think
0: you should begin
3: by breaking it down to what are the sub-questions people are really arguing about when you say, you know, I think schools should should stay open or I think they should close. And, and I think there are a couple. One sub-question is how dangerous is, at this point, probably Omicron to young kids. There's vaccinated children, right? There are unvaccinated children. And they're unvaccinated babies and infants and i have both in my household so i have a three-year-old and a, and a three-month-old my read of the data at this point is that you should not see catching omicron as a very unusual level of threat to young kids not a, a level that is very different from the flu maybe it is not even as bad as a flu not a level very different from some other things that we more or less live with without shutting down schools when they come by. But that said, there are a lot of things that we are very worried about with our kids, and we don't do, I think, completely normal standardized risk-benefit calculations, and so I'm very sympathetic to those who just say, you know, we don't know what this thing is, we don't know what its long-term consequences are, or just anything I can do to not have my kid get it. But So that's one set of the issues, right? Then, of course, there's the issue of you have a lot of teachers who live in homes who are themselves immunocompromised or have some other set of comorbidities that make them more vulnerable to the disease. They live in homes with people, you know, multigenerational homes. They have a spouse who is not well or can't get the full protection of vaccination for whatever reason. So they are afraid as anybody would be in any profession of going back out into a a place where it would be pretty easy to get it, right? You can certainly catch Omicron from a bunch of kids. You can catch anything and everything from a bunch of kids. And then there's the third issue, which is how bad are school closures for children? It's this set of intertwined risk calculations with somewhat uncertain answers that gets to the heart of this. If you're asking me, I think at this point we're dealing with a situation where... The harms of closing schools for children are really great. Omicron is getting to a level of risk that I think we don't wish were there, but I don't think it is a completely unacceptable level of risk for kids. And then the question of what do you do with particularly vulnerable teachers, just as is the question with what do you do with particularly vulnerable members of society in all kinds of professions, is a really, really hard one. To maybe step back on this for for a second, one of my observations about a lot of these conversations right now is they are sort of Delta conversations in an Omicron world. It isn't like the other institutions in life that include a lot of testing are staying open. If you travel, it's hellish right now. And so if you're in a situation where you're testing and you haven't decided to say, well, fuck it, we are not going to treat Omicron cases as anything different than cold cases or flu cases, which is to say we are not going to shut institutions down when there is an ongoing active spread, then you're going to have a lot of shutdowns. And you're having a lot of shutdowns, to my knowledge, in everything that does active testing. You're having shutdowns in college campuses. You're having shutdowns, as I mentioned, in in, in travel. You're having shutdowns in sports leagues. Like Everything is getting shut down because we do not have anything like the mechanisms or strictures in place to stop the spread of something as infectious as Omicron. And so one suspicion I have about this is we're all arguing over things that are like two weeks behind reality. And just the answer is, there's just going to be a huge amount of societal disruption for about two months as Omicron rips through the population. I am somewhat more interested in the question of what should we do in terms of our pandemic policy from, you know, March to July of 2022? Then what should we do from January to February of 2022? Because my view is January to February is more or less baked and our capacity to make a lot of public policy moves that are going to change it dramatically is pretty low. Nobody seems to be willing to contemplate big lockdowns, these school things are on the margin, but we're just going to have a lot of disruption, I think, for two months. And then there's going to be this question of how do you build in more resiliency so when the next variant comes, you can face these questions with better supplies, materials, infrastructure to make them a little bit more easy to manage.
0: Well, let's talk about something that's happening not two weeks from now, but but right now, which is President Biden is putting pressure on Congress to pass Voter protection laws by calling for an exception in the Senate filibuster rule. He said uh, earlier today, this is one of those defining moments. People are going to be judged where they were before and where they were after the vote. History is going to judge this. Do you feel this fight for voting rights in 2022 is a defining moment? It depends who wins.
3: (laughs) There was a good uh, New York Times uh, piece uh, in the Sunday Review a week or so ago that was by, I believe is by some curators at the Smithsonian. And uh, I think the title, if you want to go look it up, is What Will America Look Like in 2084? And their point was that we like this formulation of history is going to judge us. But history doesn't judge, people do. And how they judge depends on who is winning and at what time. It's like the refuge of when you're sort of failing
0: in the present. <laughs> you
3: move to history will judge you when you can't get to, well, I'm gonna beat you.
0: It is true because when I quoted Biden, you did start laughing a little bit. I'm not laughing at Joe
3: Biden. He is putting himself on the right side of the issue. He is trying to bring pressure to bear, but he doesn't really have pressure he can bring to bear. Is a big problem. He does not have leverage in any serious way over Joe Manchin. It isn't clear that he has leverage over Kristen Cinema either. I think that the Biden administration both believes deeply in this as a matter of principle. And I think they also don't want the perception to be that they let democracy rights languish. If if it dies, they don't want the view to be, well, they never tried, right? They do need to get caught trying here. But the question is, can you get Joe Manchin and Cinema to make a filibuster exception? You definitely cannot get either of them, to my knowledge, to just say, we are going to exempt H.R. 1 and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act from the filibuster. That is something they've both opposed many times. Cinema, to the extent she's now built her career on any public position, she's built it on not doing that. There has always been a possibility. I've written about this. Manchin has continued to make statements that imply an openness to this. There's always been a possibility that you could persuade him, at least, maybe them to do something that makes a filibuster more physically costly on the minority party. So for instance, right now, the way filibuster works is you really only need one member of the minority on the floor, but you need every member of the majority to try and break it. So if you created a situation where you flipped that and the filibustering coalition had to fully occupy the floor for every second of the filibuster or else any member of the majority could call the cloture vote and say, hey, you guys actually don't have three-fifths of the, the Senate here, that might create a situation where the majority on a issue as important as as Democracy reform might just say, you know what, we're going to burn two and a half months of Senate time and wait until one of you goes to the bathroom (laughs) and then we're going to call the vote. That may or may not work as a strategy, but that kind of thing is maybe somewhere where there's like the door is ever so slightly ajar. Then to the question you're asking, which is, I I think another way of asking that question is, are we on the precipice of some kind of democratic? Crisis or collapse, because I, I think if you think about the the counterfactual vision of a future you're proposing there, it's something like in the next couple of years, America falls into t- complete democratic crisis or collapse. But at some point in the future, people are looking back and saying, "What happened in 2025 was terrible. Somebody should have done something." And is then writing about how Christian cinema is a monster. Uh, maybe if you fall into complete crisis and collapse. It may also be that in the future, the people writing the history are the ones who think that was great. It may also be that what happens in the next couple of years in democracy is that in 2022, Republicans just completely destroy Democrats fair and square to the extent we have fair and square, but but they do get more votes, which I think is a very, very high possibility in 2022. And that in 2024, Ron DeSantis just beats Joe Biden. And we're not really having this conversation because Democrats simply lost. Do I think we're at a pretty dangerous moment? I do. Do I think a lot of people will be judged harshly if history holds together in the head like it to? I do. But history is no substitute for winning fights now. There's a Tanasi Coates line I love that we know the unjust backstroke through the pleasures of this life. And I always think about that.
0: I like that. I also like what you said. History is no substitute for winning fights now and one of those upcoming fights is of course the midterms if it goes the way you just predicted for the democratic party one of the reasons for that defeat will be what steve bannon and the gop have already begun to make headway on local elections in the new york times you recently wrote i'll say this for the right they pay attention to where the power lies in the american system in ways the left sometimes doesn't. Bannon calls this precinct strategy, and it's working. Can you explain what this precinct strategy entails, and then perhaps the two mismatches that sometimes paralyze Democrats? So we don't have a national election in this country.
3: We have elections in every state. The authority for those elections is devolved to counties, of which there are about 3,000. So every one of those counties, to some degree, runs not entirely their own election, but a little bit their own election. Then they have to certify election results. That ladders up to states that have to certify election results. Then the Electoral College for a presidential has to meet. And the state Electoral College voters either do or don't. In general, they do. But there's always a possibility they, they simply won't. So the way elections are actually administered is a local affair. And to have power over them, the power to administer them fairly or the power to administer them unfairly, you need to win a bunch of local elections. One of the framing devices for this column I wrote about winning local elections was to point to Steve Bannon, who has been making an effort to rile Trumpy folks up about, you know, volunteering as municipal poll workers, et cetera, through his podcast, uh, The War Room and, and In Other Means. And there is evidence that that is meaningful, right, that not just from Bannon, but in the aftermath of Trump's pre-election and post-election lying, you have a bunch of I think it is 22 Republican candidates who back the idea that Trump was maybe the winner in 2020 running for secretary of state in 15 different states in some cases, primarying people like Brad Raffensperger in, in Georgia. He's facing two separate primary opponents who, who back Trump's lies. And Trump has endorsed one of his opponents, at least. Not at least. He's endorsed one of his opponents, exactly. In general, I would say that Republicans are more attentive to state-level power and often to local-level power. Part of this is because they have a geographic advantage at those levels. Republicans are more dispersed, you know, so that matters for how many localities or how many states you can control. Steve Bannon, uh, of course, enjoyed my column on that measure because it, you know, makes him sound very powerful. He called you a big thinker. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) I would say that I was sort of using Steve Bannon there as a prod. It isn't clear to me how many people he's actually recruited, but, but maybe some. What I do think is happening, though, at a structural level is because Trumpists entirely lost national power in 2020... They have been forced to organize at the state and local level. They cannot say to themselves, well, we're going to pass a big law nationally that will solve all these problems for us. That isn't an ideating option they have. In some weird way, the absence of federal power has forced Trumpists into a much more plausible strategy for taking control of of, of local elections than the Democrats, for whom having just enough national power to maybe be able to pass these bills but not enough to actually pass them has left them stuck potentially in in a tough strategy. So the point I make about mismatches in the column is that two particular mismatches in the way American elections work end up making it hard for people to think strategically and clearly. And here I mean people who want to defend democracy One is a geographic mismatch. Democrats are concentrated in places with a lot of people, but relatively less political power. So I live in California. Wyoming has something like 70 times the per person power in the Senate that we do. But also the Electoral College, you know, underweights these places. You just have a generalized preference in our system for rural areas. So that can create a, a feeling when you're, you know, you're in a California or in a New York you're wherever you're in a city and you know that a lot of the question is what happens in, you know, how the elections are administered in these random towns in Wisconsin, it just feels completely out of your control, right? This will decide the leadership of the country you live in, but you have no actual control over it. And then the secondary mismatch is, and this is more emotional, what it it feels like you should be doing to fight for democracy, and what might be effective to do when fighting for democracy? So I would say I see online by people I, I really respect and who I agree with on these issues, like an endlessly escalatory competition for condemnation of how anti-democratic the Republican Party has become, and a real desire to fight rhetorically, maybe in other ways too, to pass things like h r one. And if you say, well, it sounds like what you're saying, because you want to make all these structural reforms, is that you somehow need to win three more Senate seats and keep control of the House. And so the question is, on a very literal level, how do you do that? And then maybe you have a conversation of, well, Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, his vulnerability is corruption. And so you need to make a big deal of how corrupt Ron Johnson is. And then in order to win the North Carolina seat, well, North Carolina, they're worried about this. And, you know, on and on and online. And all of a sudden, you're in a bunch of conversations about winning these seats. You know, these are national ones I'm talking about, but also you need to win these mayoralships if you want power over appointing the clerks who will run the elections. And those are going to be about, you know, roads and flooding and, and all these little things. And so all of a sudden, you know, you want to have this big national showdown over democracy. And what you actually need to do is build the infrastructure, get involved, run for win, all these individual seats that are not taking place on the grounds of do you believe in democracy and do you like Donald Trump or not? And that's very tough. And so you you really do need to think about the logistics of winning power in America, not just power to do things, but even just the power to administer elections fairly. And that might not mean focusing on the questions I feel emotionally satisfying to focus on.
0: When we do land in these midterms come November, in your book, Why We're Polarized, you write about the decline of ticket splitting. From 1960 to 1990, about half of senators represented a state that voted for the other party's nominee for president. Today, there are six, which speaks to your argument of polarization. People are where they are. When it comes to the Democratic Party, we talked about how to maintain integrity in elections, but once we get to the election itself, like you said, they're at a great risk of losing its Senate majority this fall. What do you see as a realistic pragmatic path forward here? I don't know
3: how Democrats can hold the Senate. They're in a tough spot. They have a 50-50 Senate. The map is not terrible for them in 2022. I mean, it is the in-cycle map from 16, right? Which just is not a terrible cycle map for them. But the difficulty they're going to face is they're a governing party in the midterm. And so... If you want to know what I expect, I expect them to lose between three and six seats for them to hold even would be a remarkable performance. And then in 2024, the map is like hell for them. <laughs> so it's going to be a rough couple of years for Democrats in the Senate. Um, it's probably going to be a rough couple of years for them in the House. Obviously, they need to try to figure out some way to fix that. So one set is that they just literally need people to feel better about how things are going in 10, 11 months than they do right now. I was thinking about this this morning, but you can look at these consumer sentiment indices. And if you ask people how they feel about their personal finances, they'll they'll say pretty good. Um, They give it a 67 out of 100, which is a high historical rating. If you ask them how they feel about the national economy, they feel pretty bad. They, they rate it in the 30s. You know, you could say, well, inflation. Yeah, I mean, inflation is a real player here. You, know, you have very low unemployment, you have high wage gains, you've had a lot of transfer payments to, to people through the stimulus and the child tax credit. So why why is the, the negative so heavy in their sentiments? And I do think a big part of it is simply the experience of the economy is bad right now. Even if you're lucky enough to have money, can't really go to a restaurant safely, everybody's masked or not enough people, wherever you are, are masked travel is horrible and you can't travel and you can't safely do a bunch of different things you might want to do. Gas is really expensive. So you feel that sticker shock and not just with that, but with other things. There is in certain places a labor supply shortage. People are constantly like out of work right now for Omicron. So things aren't open. The experience I have of the economy sucks. I'm doing fine. I could buy some stuff, but I I actually can't do anything. I am desperate to have some fun. I am desperate. I'm so tired of this just like everybody is. Well, Ezra, that's why I invited you on this show. <laughs> Nothing like talking about how Democrats are fucked in 2022 <laughs> to have a good time. So, Democrats are going to need people to feel differently. Um, they're going to need people to feel truly like it's morning in America. Whether they get that is not entirely in their control. That's partially a question of of legislation, but it's also, I mean, is there a big variant happening in November of next year? <laughs> You know, has inflation come down? Are the supply chains, have they reacted to the changes in demand? Sort of just literally, where are we? But, you know, I think you also need to ask the question of, well, what happens if in 2022, the House and Senate falls to Republicans, which is the likeliest case? And then there is, you know, going to be two more years of Joe Biden positioning himself vis-a-vis a Republican congressional majority, which, if you're being cynical about it, may not be the worst dynamic for him to win re-election in 2024, but is obviously, I think, a bad dynamic if you want to see the country governed well. I've been deciding whether or not to do this predictions column. And one of the things I just really noted was I'm writing down my predictions for the year. They're just very grim if you want to see progressive governance. Like, just, it just, it's a grim set of predictions I have. I think it's just going to be a kind of tough time. A lot of people I don't want to see in power are going to get into power. And that's sort of the condition of the country right now. The really bad outcomes on the bell curve of, you know, Trump runs and wins in 2024 and you know nullifies democracy somehow or another through some set of mechanisms that he you know he was not able to control last time uh, it's not clear to me he has the capacity to control him in the future either but you could have some real democratic crises if there's a contested election outcome in 2024 but you could also just have normal bad outcomes which is that the house senate white house and supreme court are controlled by people who i think have a bad and cruel vision for america and you haven't lost democracy; just governance is terrible for you. Well, you know, I mean, I don't know what to, I don't know what to say exactly. Don't listen to me if you want a, a sunny outlook
0: right now. Putting a pause on the conversation with Ezra Klein. We'll be right
2: back after this quick break. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The City of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the City of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.
1: Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Listen to the Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com/business/podcast. Chase. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. JP Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024 JP Morgan Chase & Company.
0: Before the break, let's go to a time where maybe you were a little bit sunnier. In the early 2000s, when you're first writing on your blog at UC Santa Cruz, you said, During this period of the Iraq War, there was a broad feeling that the media hadn't done its job, that it had been hampered by this requirement to pretend the truth always was in the middle. And I was part of that critique. Later, when you interned at the Washington Monthly, you attend the 2004 Democratic National Convention. As you attended the DNC, you said to the Philadelphia Inquirer that you considered yourself an activist walking the halls of power. An activist walking the halls of power. I wonder when you hear that version of a more optimistic self, does it feel foreign? Oh, I don't think I was more optimistic
3: then. I, I don't want to say it was so much worse of a moment because of COVID, but that was such a terrible moment. I really think people have forgotten how bad 2004 was. This is one of my deep political views. It's amazing to now be the old guy with like gray hair here saying like, you kids don't fucking remember, but you you kids don't remember. To be fair, I was 10. Exactly. That's what I mean. You kids don't remember. God, it's so horrible becoming old. It's so terrible. Everything hurts all the time. 2004, you are years into a war that it is now clear was sold on a foundation of lies into a frightening and unnerving national surveillance state. And this bizarre blackmail-y patriotic politics of flag pins and you're with us or you're against us. And what about the fifth column in America? Huge numbers of Iraqis have died. There are a lot of Americans who have come home in body bags. We are wasting blood and treasure on a failing war. And again, we were lied into it, or at least the intelligence we were brought into it on was bullshit. And George W. Bush wins again. Before COVID, he had done much more damage as a governing force than Donald Trump did. And COVID was less Donald Trump's fault than the Iraq war is George W. Bush's fault. I mean, Donald Trump did a terrible job on COVID, but he he didn't create it. And so 2004 feels very similar to me. 2004 is a moment when you really realize the country could go in incredibly dark directions.
0: On the eve of November 2nd, 2004, you do an interview with the LAist in which you said, it's time to drink and heavily. The battle lines aren't just drawn, they're engraved. And with no one left to convince, there's little left to say. Wait, I said that or somebody said that about me? You said that. That's so
3: dire. That was the, after the election? That's some blog post or something? It's the night of.
0: Huh.
3: Doesn't really sound like me, but fair enough. If you say I said it, I said it. <laughs> I can send you the link. <laughs> 2004 is really bad. That's the only point I want to make about this. and And I make it in almost a spirit of optimism which is you really can't predict politics very far in the future. And again, I think it's really easy to forget this. So in 2004, Kerry loses. George W. Bush wins by a significantly larger margin than in 2000 when he lost the popular vote. And the immediate reaction across the media is Democrats have lost touch with what was then called the heartland. There was also a belief, which I think didn't really hold true when you looked at the numbers, but that Karl Rove had as a genius measure put all these same-sex marriage initiatives on ballots in key states, and that had brought out a big evangelical turnout. So now there was also this burgeoning view among some center-left pundits that, well, Democrats had become too liberal, too cosmopolitan, John Kerry spoke French, too gay, even though John Kerry did not support gay marriage at that time. It was a gruesome political moment. And you know the kinds of things Democrats you know talked about doing to, to win back power, and the kinds of people they talked about running, it, it didn't look great. And then, so what ends up happening? There's obviously, I mean, horribly a financial crisis. But the Iraq, the level of failure of the Iraq War becomes clear to people. They turn on the Republican Party. Democrats take back the the House in '06. Then comes a the financial crisis. But you know this black uh, constitutional law professor cool-headed, intellectual, you know, very liberal for American politics at that time at the national level named Barack Hussein Obama. I mean, it it seemed ridiculous that that's what you would do as a response to a four, but then he wins. And so, you know, the the worst of America politically and at least much brighter moments coexist pretty close to each other. But 2022 is going to be probably like a reaping for Democrats.
0: I think because we are in such dire times, There are a lot of people reconsidering what they want to do with their lives. There's been more new businesses created in the last few months than ever before. People uprooting, making changes. And I want to talk about this perhaps both in that larger context, but in a personal context for you, which is that you create Vox and in November of 2020, you leave Vox for The Times. I know you also leave D.C. for the Bay Area two years before that. And I've been thinking about this move of yours, which, you know, comes after 15 years of rigorous day-to-day policy reporting, creating Wonk blog at The Washington Post, appearing on MSNBC as an analyst, creating and managing Vox. I wonder how you think about that move to the West Coast and then in turn your pivot to The New York Times.
3: I see what you're getting at with the D.C. to California move, and there is truth to it. I love Washington, DC. I'm not a hater of the place. It was not a place where I was growing in ways that I liked. For me, I could feel that if I didn't leave, I would never leave. I expect I will move back at some point. I mean, I think my life will have different phases in different places, but I didn't want to be a person who never tried other places or or did other things. I've been lucky to be successful, but success can be a kind of trap too. And you can just burrow deeper and deeper into the same thing you know and have a certain amount of autonomy over or within. I also just needed a place I was a little bit more anonymous for a while. But at that point, I didn't have a new question I was answering covering politics for myself in D.C., which is not to say I understand everything about politics or there's nothing left to do. It's just that I felt a need to try to play with different questions for a while one of the the areas of questioning had become more technological. I'd come to believe in D.C. that a lot of what I was covering in politics was downstream from technological changes. I think Trump was a creation of a different communication and media environment to a very, very large degree. I think that a lot of policy is built on a technological substrate that either makes things possible or makes them impossible. And it seemed, for some of the things I wanted to understand, that I had to spend time trying to understand, you know, what we call like the technology sector, though I don't really love the name because what's here is, you know, a subset of, I think what should probably be understood as technology. I've not been able to do that fully to the degree I wanted to because of the pandemic, but I have been able to do it much more. And my California period won't be forever either. I think it has instilled in me a desire to move more often I think you grow in different ways in different places. One of my great regrets at this point in my life is I've never lived internationally. I would like to do that. The people I really end up respecting, the sort of more august journalists, they tend to be people who have lived a number of journalistic lives, such that the accretion of different experience and and knowledge coheres into a kind of wisdom for them. But I I don't want to get stuck in a place. In some ways, for me, the the best thing about moving to D.C. when we did was establishing a principle in our own lives that we could move. And like that was a possible thing to do, even under sort of weird circumstances. I still worked at Vox, this place I had founded, Um, but it was an assertion of that capability.
0: I think what you're talking about is living a life that is a more varied and b, perhaps more intentional in terms of asking yourself, you and your partner, and now your two kids, what do we want and where exactly do we want it? That seems to be happening for a lot of people across America right now. What have you made of this sort of self-evaluation that's almost existential in nature? I don't yet know what to make of it. I
3: am a little skeptical of some of the narratives that are being placed on all these decisions. Like the one I just did. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's just a specific criticism of you, Sam. Without better qualitative or quantitative data, that's a very cold way of saying that. But look, one way of saying, speaking about the great resignation, right, as people call it, is that a lot of people have said, God, what even is this life and what am I doing in it? Another way of saying it might be that for a number of these people who are quitting, they're in a job that no longer feels safe and they're not huzzah, like I'm going to (laughs) go... indulge my interest in woodworking, but they're frightened for themselves or their families, and they're quitting a job that was a paycheck, and they're not really sure what to do next. I am not seeing in survey data a huge explosion in life fulfillment. (laughs) And so it just makes me wonder a little bit what this really is. I don't want to deny that a lot of people are changing jobs or changing locations and trying something different out because the nature of how we live right now is changing and where you can be is changing. And but I think these stories are very varied. You know, I I hope this is all going to end in an explosion of human flourishing and fulfillment. But right now, I worry that we've somehow pasted a very hopeful narrative on people making decisions that in many cases, the way I hear them. They are desperate or exhausted, right? I know, for instance, a lot of people, like a significant number of people who during this period have decided to move closer to family because childcare has become such a complete nightmare. They absolutely need grandparents around. And they are in that great resignation data. And maybe it's better to live near your parents. I'm completely open to that idea. And I think for many people it is, and maybe for me it would be. But I don't think what is happening there is that they said, ah, oh, you know, I've just never been able to build boats. No, like their life has been hellish and they move somewhere where it might be a little bit easier. And so we'll see. I- I'm just a little, I'm a little worried about what feels to me like a pat narrative. It's a little bit like what people want to believe of this, but I'm not sure what the, the evidence for it really is.
0: Basically, you're saying to use your boat metaphor, people are drowning and they're just trying to get back to land.
3: Yeah. I mean, some people, I don't think we know.
0: I I think there's a lot from this
3: period that we don't know. I think people snap back to equilibrium, and I think the equilibriums often aren't that good. Look, there are real pressures on the economy right now, and I'm very worried that we're gonna handle them by screwing over low-wage workers, as opposed to figuring out how to produce things or bring down gas prices or or whatever it might be. You know, in terms of the great resignation parts that I care about, I think a lot of low-wage labor is awful and exploitative. And over the course of the pandemic, at certain moments, particularly around the $600 unemployment insurance boost and the stimulus checks, we gave people at the lower rungs of the economy a little bit more economic power to make decisions on their own behalf. But they don't have that anymore. We didn't keep giving them that money. The stimulus checks are not getting renewed. The child tax credit is likely to expire at the moment we are talking anyway. And so the question... like. Those people will need jobs. We didn't create any structural change in their power. Um, now, a hotter labor market does give them somewhat more power. And so tighter hiring is good. And I mean, there are things that are pushing in the other direction here, but it's not a tremendous phase shift. I mean, it's not a tremendously better economy than it was in 2019 at this point. And so I have some real questions about what we're seeing and, and, and how much of a change it's going to ultimately end up looking like.
0: A decade ago, you participated in a Reddit AMA. You probably never thought it was going to be brought back up. It is. (laughs) One commenter named Add to the Law, they wrote, Can you give a simple prognostication of what the 20-somethings coming through the political ranks right now should be concerned slash excited about over the next two decades? I have here your answer, which I can't imagine you would remember. I definitely don't. What did I say? Could you just read... The last paragraph of what you said here so this would have been in 2012 12. i guess mm-hmm.
3: i worry a lot about a broken political system heavily biased towards inaction and under that model what scares me are issues where you need lots of congressional action and energy to do anything global warming is the obvious one and even more difficult due to its international component but pandemic flus loose nukes etc all keep me up if only because of the sort of questions that don't have much of a constituency and thus can easily be ignored until something goes terribly, catastrophically wrong. I should play the
0: stock market more. (laughs) It's sort of ominous reading that from a decade ago.
3: Yeah, but that wasn't a hard call. The idea that we weren't prepared for pandemic flu was cliche, basically. I mean, I wasn't pulling that out of some genius analysis of, of flu genomes. Like, we were not prepared, and that was clear. And congressional paralysis had been, you know, was a... I think I was a little bit early in seeing and understanding how polarization is breaking Congress. But again, if you were coming of age in the political moment, I was it it wasn't our call and all that stuff has more or less gotten worse. I think what is in certain ways shocking is how few reforms the pandemic has even forced on pandemic policy. Is the CDC going to be any different at the end of 2022 as it was at the end of 2021? I don't think so. The FDA? I don't think so we stripped out the pandemic preparedness money from Build Back Better, if that even passes. We're not legislating in any kind of farsighted way. We did, I will say, actually, once the pandemic hit, there was a, a significant flurry of particularly fiscal legislating that exceeded my expectations. But in terms of being prepared for anything, anywhere, at any time, the failures of our system are, are are clear and have been for a very long time. And I do think one nice thing about bringing that up from 2011, I guess 2012, is to note that a lot of the structural failures predate Trump. You know, I was not writing there about a Trump Republican Party. I was writing there about, you know, Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan's Republican Party and the way all that was was cohering in, in Congress. So, yeah, we have a tremendous failure of institutions right now. I keep trying to tell people about it, but they keep not not doing
0: anything. Well, you've told us about it throughout this podcast, but I'm gonna reframe the question. The Reddit commenter asked you to give a simple prognostication of what 20-somethings coming through the political ranks right now should be concerned, excited about over the next two decades. I'm gonna fix it. Now that we're in 2022, what are you concerned, but also excited about over the next two decades?
3: I'm just gonna pass on concern. I think you've heard enough of my concerns. Honestly, thank you so much. <laughs> in terms of excited about, I actually have partially similar answer to, to something that was in that question, right? If you We didn't read the top of that question, but I did say that I thought technological change and the rising numbers of people who could contribute to technological change was probably the thing to be most excited about. And I think that's more or less been borne out. Now, a lot of technological change has not always been for the better a lot of things i don't like in the attentional economy but my god i mean the vaccines remain one of the truly remarkable human achievements to be doing vaccinations in real time against a pandemic flu there's never been anything in our history to my knowledge like this at this speed right we didn't we didn't catch polio a couple of months after it came out with a vaccine so i think that potential advances in biotech are remarkable if you look at the pace at which renewable energy has been dropping in price, it is remarkable. I would not call myself optimistic on climate change, but I am optimistic on, on renewable energy and the speed with which that can go. And I would just pump, pump, pump money into it and make sure the regulatory structures we have are actually oriented towards speeding it along. Um, the risks of inaction there are much worse than, in my view, the, the risks of action. I think that If you got um, various forms of artificial intelligence and just uh, generalized computing power right, you could do really remarkable things across a range of industries. So I have uh, a fair amount of excitement around technological change. This will be a weird answer, but maybe it's a good one to end on, which is, I think even believing everything I do about how much we are likely to fail on a bunch of our most profound problems, people still underestimate, particularly the people listening to this podcast, how good of a time it is to be alive, and what the possibilities are in being alive in, in in this era and those to come. I mean, I get a lot of the emails of, you know, should I have kids with climate change? And your kids, if you're emailing me, they're going to be some of the most privileged kids in the entirety of human history, like the entirety of human history to a first approximation. There's a lovely line. I have my issues with Don't Look Up as an allegory for climate change, where I think it gets a tremendous amount wrong, but it's taken as a movie on its own merits. The final line, which I don't think actually spoils too much of the movie, where DiCaprio says, we really did have everything, didn't we? You know, if you can close down Twitter, which I often can't, and, you know, rest your own attention back and... And just pay attention. I mean, you can listen to all the greatest music ever composed. You can, you know, be more engaged in the scientific process than any amateur ever could have at any other time. You can really take the fruits of modernity. And it is a hard reality of being a human being amidst surveillance capitalism and with very strange minds that often make it very hard to do what we know is good for us. I don't think it is an easy time to be a human because I don't think being a human is easy. I don't think we are wired for it to be easy. But I think there's just tremendous possibilities and that most of us, again, you know, I'm speaking of the kind of people who might listen to this podcast, the level of freedom available to us is so far beyond what our ancestors had, the level of like time we can rest, things we can do, places we can live, people we can talk to and learn from. It's also new to have that kind of freedom that to only look at the future no matter the scope of the challenges, with depression and pessimism, to imagine that your future is unusually constrained, is to wall yourself off from flourishing possible and open to you. So that is my optimistic take.
0: Before we go, my last question. Having that second kid a couple months ago, having the first one, has that door opened up because of them? No,
3: I adore my children uh, and having two kids is it's that that, that one's a journey. Um, there's a line that one kid is one and two is many. And they're both great. They're wonderful, wonderful, wonderful little kids. But i that's just true. What I just said, I didn't only see it because I had a kid. Like, it's just true. You know, read history. Like everybody's dying left. I mean, it just, I, I was just reading a biography of Pessoa, who's this Portuguese multi-voiced poet. Boy, that makes me sound very cultured. Uh, But just like everybody around him at all times is dying of tuberculosis. It's just constant. Just everybody he knows, family, siblings, children, everybody's constantly dying of tuberculosis. I am grateful that my children are growing up in a world of antibiotics and vaccines. But I don't think you need to have children to recognize that antibiotics, vaccines, the ability to listen, to the greatest... Mu- I mean, you're a music and an acting guy. I mean, the, the capacity to only imbibe the greatest culture in human history at all times, it's cool. Now, do we do it? No. I, I sit around absorbing garbage a lot, but that doesn't mean it's not possible. And the effort it takes, the kind of application of discipline to live a sort of remarkable life I wish it took less discipline and fewer gigantic companies were trying to destroy your ability to to apply it. But for most of human history, it was not possible to apply that discipline in that way to have very different options than your parents had. If you look at old family trees and people, it's like everybody's doing the same thing for generation after generation in the same place. I think a lot of folks with a lot of freedom have talked themselves out of the freedom they actually have and have made, like, for the world, everything is systemic, but for individuals, it is not all systemic. And that is not a, I I think people are going to interpret that as systemic racism, but I don't mean it that way. I actually mean it more in terms of, like, your role in human history. And, And I wish sometimes that people had a little bit more optimism about the the lives they could individually lead when that is warranted, which again, if you're listening to Talk Easy with Sam Fergoso, it's probably warranted.
0: Well, Ezra, I am uh, happy and grateful to be alive, especially after these last two years. And I know you said earlier, Sam, I just want to have a little bit of fun. And I hope you've had some of that here with me.
3: It's been a blast. I feel more optimistic than when I came on. I talked myself into a stirring speech on human freedom. so. That's always a good afternoon.
0: Happy to help. Ezra Klein, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's our show. I want to give a special thanks this week to Ezra Klein. You can learn more about his work and uh, his podcast on our website at talkeasypod.com. If you enjoyed today's conversation and want to hear more like it, I'd recommend our talks with Michael Lewis, Roxanne Gay, Dave Eggers, Jake Tapper, Jelani Cobb, Anna Sale, Nathaniel Rich, Elizabeth Gilbert, Noam Chomsky, and Representative Ilhan Omar. To hear those and other Pushkin podcasts, Listen on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you do your podcasting. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you want to write in for that mailbag episode I talked about in the intro, be sure to drop us a line at mail at talkeasypod.com. That's mail at talkeasypod.com. If you want to support our show by purchasing one of our mugs, they come in cream or navy. Or if you want to buy our vinyl with Fran Leibowitz, you can do so at talkeasypod.com shop. If you want to support us in other ways, be sure to leave us a review on Spotify, Apple, wherever you do your listening. Reviewing and rating our show is still the best way for new listeners to find Talk Easy. Speaking of, this program would not be possible without our team. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janik Sabravo. Our associate producer and the editor of today's episode is Caitlin Dryden. Our mixer is Andrew Bastola. Music by Dylan Peck. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, Ethan Seneca, and Layla Register. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Kaelin Ung, Shiloh Fagan, Nikki Spina, and Callie Syringas. I'd also like to thank the team at Pushkin Industries. Justin Richmond, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Maggie Taylor, Nicole Morano, Maya Canig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Jacob Weisberg, and Malcolm Gladwell. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. Next week, we sit with actress and producer Tessa Thompson. Until then, stay safe, and so long.
2: Enter now at tmobile.com/slash slash awards. See you there.
1: Smart journalism. Fascinating topics. Words that describe CNN's podcast, The Assignment with Audie Cornish. Last year, the Army missed its recruitment goal. It had 65,000 spots to fill and came up 10,000 short of that target. Why is it so hard to recruit? How's the Pentagon responding? And... How are the voices of service members on social media shifting the balance? Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish wherever you get your podcasts.